Chapter Twelve of Cherry Ames Island Nurse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nan Dodge. Cherry Ames Island Nurse by Helen Wells. The Secret in the Tower. The lustrous gleam of the candles which Cherry had lighted in the candelabra brightened the room. Tammy placidly took off his sou'wester and slicker after shaking the water off on the hearth. Then he deposited them, together with his tarpaulin-wrapped bundle, on the deep window-sill nearest him. With a plop he sank into one of the armchairs near the hearth, brushed a lock of hair out of his eyes, and regarded Cherry gravely. "'Ye're Miss Ames, Sir Ian's nurse,' he said after a minute. Cherry had a good look now at the boy who had entered the tower room so calmly and made himself quite at home. He was the most self-possessed young person she had seen in a long time. She saw that he was a scrawny, tow-headed boy of ten or eleven, with a wind-burned face. He had a quaint, old-fashioned air about him that reminded her of a wise little old man. "'How did you get here in the storm, and at this time of night?' asked Cherry. "'I hid in the greenhouse first, he began. Then I hid on the kitchen stoop until everything was quiet.' Then I sneaked into the house and up the stairs, and through the iron door at the end of the hall, the way Miss Meg used to take some of us boys and girls to the tower. Then I went down and unlocked the outside door so my granda can get in. And then I came up here to wait for my granda. I brought some victuals in case he was hungry. Tammy pointed to the bundle on the window sill. You mean your grandfather, Mr. Jock Cameron, is coming here to the tower cried cherry what is he coming here for to give me a message for my grandma answered tammy cherry went over to the armchair on the other side of the hearth and sat down look tammy she said let's begin at the beginning tell me what this is all about i dinna know if i should replied tammy granda made it plain i was to keep my tongue quiet and slip up to the tower without being seen but I've seen you, Cherry pointed out. Furthermore, when I was in St. John's today, I saw your grandfather go aboard Mr. Joseph Tweed's fishing boat, the Heron. Tammy's eyes dropped while he considered this. Then, giving her a sidelong glance from beneath lowered lids, he said with a sigh, You must know then about the bad ones. Cherry shook her head. No, I don't know about the bad ones. Suppose you tell me. Ah, Will. Tammy heaved a sigh, his shoulders slumped dejectedly. Ye may as well know. The bad ones are Mr. Tweed, the one they call Little Joe, and the captain and crew of the Heron. They are smuggling something out of the old mine, and taking it out through Rogue's Cave. Granda has been trying to find out what it is. Does your grandfather have any idea what it might be? asked Cherry. All Granda said was, Timmy, tis a valuable thing, whatever it is replied the boy. Granda tried many ways to find out. He went fishing so he could watch the heron to see if a boat brought anything from Rogue's Cave to load on board. But the loading must have been done at night, Granda said, because he saw a boat only once during the daytime, loading heavy sacks aboard the heron. Granda even stayed sometimes in the hidey-hole in Rogue's Cave to try to catch the bad ones red-handed." "'The hidey-hole in Rogue's Cave!' exclaimed Cherry. "'Does your grandfather know about that? 
Aye, Tammy nodded. "'Tis a secret my granddad shared with the old Sir Ian. "'And my great-granddad told the secret to my granddad. "'And your grandfather still hasn't found out what is being smuggled?' asked Cherry. "'Tammy thought a moment. "'I think he knows,' the boy said slowly. "'But I dinna think he knows for sure. "'To try to make sure, granddad went to St. John's to stow away on the heron.' "'So that's why your grandfather went aboard the heron,' Cherry said. "'He was a stowaway.' "'Then he must have known somehow that the heron was coming to Balfour Island.' "'Tammy nodded. "'Aye, Granda have found out that little Joe and the captain and crew of the heron were all coming to the island tonight. "'And your grandfather told you to come to the tower to wait for him. Is that right, Tammy?' "'The boy nodded again. "'Aye,' he said. "'But if he stowed away, how was your grandfather going to get ashore?' "'And how in the world can he get ashore in this storm?' Cherry asked. "'We will just have to wait, I guess, for Granda to answer that,' Tammy said. He sloughed off his black rubber boots and wriggled back into the chair. Cherry wisely let Tammy alone. Whatever else he might recall, he would tell it in his own good time. In the meantime, it was best to go ahead with her search for the secret journal. After all, that was what she had come up here for. Besides, the search would be sure to arouse Tammy's curiosity, and she hoped to enlist his help. A boy had hidden the journal, and who would be more likely to think of hiding places than another boy? Although the tower room was seldom used nowadays, as Meg had once told her, the maid swept and dusted it once or twice a year, and there were candles in holders placed conveniently about. Cherry lighted the one on the desk and began to look through the little drawers, which resembled so much an oversized spice cabinet. Each drawer had rocks and minerals in it, she discovered. On these were splotches of white paint, on which were lettered salt crystals, lead sulfide, carbon, pitch blend, and so on. Then there were drawers with what Cherry recognized as man-made, rather boy-made, she supposed, nuggets cubes pellets thin sheets and discs on each of these was a dab of white paint and a symbol such as f e c u a g s n p b a u and so on there were she estimated between twenty and twenty-five different symbols used although there were many more pieces there was for instance a drawer full of various sized pieces labeled F.E. These were covered with a reddish dust or coat that rubbed off on her hands. Looks just like rust, Cherry remarked aloud. It is, a voice said in her ear. Iron will rust away if you don't paint it. There was Tammy beside her, watching interestedly. How do you know this is iron, she asked, holding up one of the pieces. Because I know iron when I see it, he answered. Besides, it says so on the label. He touched the painted spot with a finger. F.E., that's short for ferrum, iron. Tammy pronounced the Latin word with a strong burr of the R's. Then you must know what all these other letters on the rocks and minerals mean, Cherry said. Maybe not all for sure, he said modestly, but almost all. My da and my granda taught me. Touching the labels, he recited, C.U., that's copper, P.B., lead, S.N., tin, 
this little piece with A.U., that's gold. You really do know, Cherry commented. Do you live here on the island with your mother and father, she asked, by way of starting a conversation. No, ma'am, my da is a metallurgist. He works for the Canadian government, he said proudly. He and my mother are up in Labrador. I'm staying with Grandma and Granda until they get settled. Tammy walked around to the other side of the desk and began fumbling about in one of the drawers, picking up bits of metals and minerals and examining them. He held up a tiny black disc. This is silver, he announced. See, the label says A.G. So that's silver, Cherry said, taking the disc and looking at it. I don't see any other pieces with A.G. on them, but there seems to be quite a lot of iron. Oh, it's no hard to find iron on Balfour, said Tammy. He thought a moment, nor yet ore with lead in it. But silver now, that's another thing. I wonder where he got it. He? Do you mean old Sir Ian? asked Cherry. The father of the Sir Ian we know? The very same, replied Tammy, nodding. When some of Grandad's friends, like Mr. Morgan, come to visit, they sometimes talk about old Sir Ian, and how their fathers always said that he was a clever boy. He called this his laboratory. Cherry could feel her excitement mounting as she asked, Do you know that old Sir Ian kept a secret journal? Tammy looked at her blankly. You know, she explained, when old Sir Ian was a boy, he kept a notebook in which he put down what happened each day. He also wrote down his formulas for testing the rocks and minerals. Tammy's face lighted up. Oh, you mean like a chemistry notebook? Yes, yes, Cherry said quickly. That's right. Do you know about it? Tammy considered the question, pursing his lips and frowning in thought. Aye, aye, I have heard that old Sir Ian kept a notebook. He paused, then added brightly, Are you searching for it? Cherry nodded vigorously. I simply must find it. Will you help me? Tammy was delighted. To hunt for a secret hiding place was fascinating. If he used a notebook to set down his experiments, it would have to be handy, the boy suggested. But if you didn't want anyone to know about it and wanted to keep your experiment secret, where would you put it, urged Cherry. Tammy grinned up at Cherry like a conspirator, taking her into his confidence. I'd keep it handy and hide it, too, he said, because I might have to put it away quickly if anyone came. Then he began walking about the fireplace and the desk, sizing everything up as though he were a cat, measuring the distance to spring somewhere. Cherry stood and watched him. Tammy considered the desk. Nah, not there. He moved to the cupboard and threw open the doors. Shelves were filled with glass tubes, beakers, mortar and pestle, and other laboratory equipment. Not this cupboard either, he decided. The fireplace seemed to interest him. The inside he ruled out because the heat from a fire might ruin a notebook. He eyed the stones above the mantel. Now that is a very curious thing, he said slowly, a very curious thing, and to think I never noticed afore this. Cherry held her breath. What didn't you notice? They aren't the same kind of stones at all, he said, not at all. He darted across the room, got a straight chair which he dragged over to the fireplace. Climbing on it, he began feeling the stones just below the legend. All nature hath a tongue. E'en the stones do speak, if ye have ears to hear. 
Cherry heard Tammy murmuring to himself as he touched the stones. This is a rock with gold in it. This one has lapis in it. I can see streaks of platinum. This is quartz. He skipped several. He did not appear to know. Then continued, this one, this black one. He stopped, poked the stone harder. Why, why, here's a loose one, he cried, grasping it with his hands. It was about the size of a large grapefruit. Look, look! He gave it a yank, and it fell with a thud on the hearth. Cherry sprang closer to the boy, and the two of them found themselves staring into a hollowed-out place back of where the stone had been. "'I think there's something in there,' Tammy said. His voice rose excitedly as he started to reach in. "'Don't put your hand in there,' Cherry warned, grabbing his arm. Snatching her flashlight from the table where she had left it, she shone it into the hollow. There was something way at the back. Before she could stop him this time, Tammy jerked his arm free, and reaching in pulled out a small leather pouch. Jumping down, he handed it to her, and they rushed over to the table to look at it by the light of the candelabra. The pouch had a simple drawstring closing, but Cherry's fingers trembled so with excitement that she could not open it. As she fumbled with it, she could feel what seemed to be pebbles inside, and something thin and crackling. "'Open it, Miss Ames,' Tammy kept saying, hopping about. "'Please open it. Let's see what's inside.' "'I'm trying,' Cherry told him, "'but I'm so excited. There!' She pulled, the mouth of the pouch open, almost ripping the ancient leather in her haste. The contents, black pellets, some large, some small, spilled out on the table. Tammy seized one and made white shiny streaks on it by scratching it against his metal belt buckle. Silver, it's silver, he cried, dancing up and down. We found us a whole pocket full of silver. Pointing toward the black stone that had fallen on the floor, he began to laugh, delighted with himself and his discovery. That's a silver rock, he declared. Old Sir Ian hid the pouch full of silver behind the rock with silver in it. He thought it was a wonderful joke. Cherry laughed with him. She and Tammy picked up a handful of the blackened silver pieces and let them dribble through their fingers. We found the treasure, just as people always did in fairy tales, eh, Tammy? He nodded, bright-eyed. Cherry felt the pouch. There is still something in here, she said, putting her hand inside and drawing out a sheet of paper, folded several times. It had been torn from a notebook, for one edge was ragged. With Tammy watching her intently, Cherry carefully opened the yellowed and fragile sheet, which was covered with writing in a clear copper-plate script, the ink brown with age. She read aloud, June 8th. This is silver from the old mine, which has not been worked for years and years. Found rocks of native silver when I went past the crawlway in Rogue's Cave. June 9. Found more rocks. Pure black sulphurets. When I exposed them to fire, I got globules of native silver. Must be a vein of silver somewhere. June 10. Followed the tunnel to the shaft of the old mine, and came out on top of the big hill. Can't find the vein, but brought back more rocks. Each day I melt the silver and hide it behind the stone of silver, which I got from the old mine. 
No one would think to look behind this stone above the fireplace. Magic words cannot open Ian Barclay's treasure cranny as Ali Baba did in the story in Arabian Nights. June 11. Rain today. The Cameron and Morgan boys came over. They looked at the different rocks I had put under the legend over the fireplace. They did not know one rock from another. They only know about iron. June 12. Explored all afternoon. Still could not find vein of silver. Mother and Da will be away tomorrow. I shall explore all day. I will find the silver load. It has to be there. That was the end of the entries. A silver mine, exclaimed Cherry. That's what they were looking for. The bad ones, cried Tammy. Silver. Of course that's it, agreed Cherry. That's what they must be smuggling out. The men on the heron have been digging and carrying silver out, said Tammy. But Tammy, Cherry said, it must take lots and lots of rocks to make a very little silver. The boy gave her a scornful look. You see that rock, he asked, pointing to the black rock on the hearth. That's real native silver. It's full of nails like wire, and they're pure silver. My da says I know the different rocks and minerals almost as well as he does. I'll take your word for it, Cherry told him. But how do these men dig it out? Don't they have to have drills or something? Nah, nah, not native silver, replied Tammy. You can dig it out with a bar with a point at one end and a chisel at the other. Easy as that. He snapped his fingers. And it doesn't take a lot to make a good bit of silver, either. My da says some of the miners in Mexico used to hollow out the handles of their hammers and fill them with pulverized rocks. Why, they even, some of them, da said, used to carry enough away in their cigarette papers to sell for several pennies. It was obvious Tammy knew what he was talking about. He was apparently as much of a boy scientist as old Sir Ian had been in his day. Cherry could scarcely believe that she and the boy Tammy had finally uncovered the secret of the abandoned mine. Of course, the discovery of a rich vein of silver could mean a fortune to the Barclays, and probably solve all Sir Ian's financial problems. If little Joe Tweed's men had been working the vein and carrying off the silver, they must be stopped. Cherry gathered up the little silver balls and the pages of the notebook and put them back into the leather pouch. Oh, if only Lloyd and Meg were here, she thought. She put the pouch into her pocket for safekeeping. While Cherry had been lost in thought, gathering up the silver pellets, Tammy had been walking up and down in front of the bookshelves. Are you looking for something, Tammy? she asked. He glanced at her, smiling. Aye, we didna find Sir Ian's notebook yet. Do you think it's there among the other books? asked Cherry. She skimmed the titles in their neat rows in the ornate bookcase. Geology and other books on science were all together. Then there were history, biography, fairy tales and ballads, stories of pirates, and factual accounts of explorers and expeditions. When I dinna want anyone to find something, Tammy said, peering up under the shelves, I fix it to the underside of something. There was once a boy who used to swipe my marbles, so I taped the bag under my desk and he couldn't find them. The shelves were of heavy wood decorated with carving. 
A strip of carving perhaps three inches wide ran along the front edge of each shelf. Cherry joined Tammy in peering under the shelves. Behind the strip of carving, which was quite wide enough to hide a book, Tammy knelt down to look at the second shelf from the floor. Here's something, he cried. Cherry quickly got her flash, and kneeling down beside the boy, played the light on the shelf. She saw that a wooden box with one side cut away had been nailed to the underside of the shelf. Tammy reached in through the cutaway side and pulled out an old book. Cherry and Tammy grinned happily at each other. He handed the book to her, and they slowly stood up. Cherry took the book to the table, and together they examined it under the candlelight. On the spine were the words, The Boha. The binding was handmade of white canvas, now yellow with age, and on the cover, in hand lettering, was the full title, Sir Graysteel of Boha. With rising excitement, Cherry turned back the cover. The first page was filled with handwriting, wonderfully clear, even though the paper was yellow and the black ink turned brown. She read aloud to Tammy. My journal from my eleventh birthday, 21 June, 1881. I am going to keep a daily journal beginning today. I shall set down in it what I do and think and things that happen. I shall tell about exploring and all I find and experiment with, such as plants, bugs, chemicals, but especially rocks and minerals. I mean to be a scientist some day. I think it amusing to make a jest of my journal, which is all about real things and happenings, and give it a fairy tale name, Sir Graysteel of Boha. Cherry read no further. Is this the notebook old Sir Ian used to write in every day when he was a boy? asked Tammy. Yes, Tammy, Cherry told him excitedly. This is old Sir Ian's secret journal, and you are the one, Tammy, who found it. With trembling fingers, Cherry turned the pages. See, Tammy, she said, the pages are filled with writing, and here at the end is where a page has been torn out. That is the page we found in the leather pouch with the silver. It just matches the book. It was the last page he ever wrote in his journal. Cherry could guess why the torn-out page was the last of the journal. Obviously the boy had written no more after the time he had been lost for days in Rogue's Cave. He had been quite ill after that experience, and, as soon as he was well enough to travel, he had been sent to school in Scotland. It was twenty years before he returned to Balfour, a man grown and married, so the story went as Higgins had told Cherry. The secret journal and the secret cranny of silver, if old Sir Ian ever thought of them again, were a part of the long-ago past, better left undisturbed among the magical adventures of boyhood. Cherry became aware that Tammy's attention had wandered. His head was cocked, listening. The two of them had been so intent on the journal that they had not noticed how quiet everything had become. It would have been quite still outside were it not for the pounding of the surf upon the rocks below the cliffs. Tammy padded over to the window, opened the casement, and looked out. I think the storm's almost over, he announced. Cherry followed and stood beside him to gaze at the sky, which was full of clouds racing away to the northeast. 
Now and then a star shone, but the wind still tossed the branches of the trees, and the rain spattered their faces. "'Listen, Miss Ames,' Tammy cried suddenly. "'I heard someone cry out down below.' Cherry listened. Faintly, as from a great distance, it seemed she could hear a cry. She was not sure, for the waves roared too loudly. "'There it was again!' exclaimed Tammy. "'I heard somebody cry out. It must be Granda.' Tammy darted away. Cherry leaned out, trying to catch the sound of a voice. When she turned to see what Tammy was doing, she found that he had drawn on his boots and was putting on his slicker. "'I'm going to find Granda,' Tammy said, snatching up his sou'wester and his bundle. He dodged past her out the door and went flying down the stairs. "'Tammy! Tammy!' Cherry shouted. She might as well have called to the wind. Tammy's footsteps could be heard going down, down, down the flights of stairs." The door on the ground floor slammed shut after him, the bang echoing up the stairwell. Cherry had quickly blown out the candles, and taking her flashlight raced after him as fast as she could, down the staircase and outside into the storm. As she ran, she kept calling, "'Tammy, wait, you'll get hurt!' But there was no answer. She went stumbling along the path at the top of the cliffs, shining her flash this way and that, hoping to pick out his figure in the gloom. She called, Tammy! No answer. There was no one on the cliffs. She stopped to listen. The only sounds were those of wind and rain and the boom of the surf. When Cherry burst into the kitchen, drenched, curls in wild disorder, Tess, the cook, was so much startled that she cried out in alarm. Oh, Miss Cherry, what's happened? Tess asked. You're pale as a ghost. "'It's Tammy!' Cherry cried out. "'Little Tammy Cameron! He's gone! I can't find him! I've looked everywhere!' Higgins, who was just returning from a tour of the downstairs windows, to see if water had seeped in, heard their voices raised in alarm and came running. He was aghast to find Cherry, who was supposed to be quite dry inside the house, appear of a sudden all wet and dripping pools of water upon the floor like the king of the Golden River. The fire in the kitchen fireplace burned up brightly, but Tess and Higgins stood holding candles aloft, as if frozen at attention, while Cherry breathlessly told them of going to the tower, of Tammy's arrival, of hearing someone call from below the cliffs, of Tammy rushing out in the belief that it was his grandfather, and of her own fruitless search for the boy. Neither Tess nor Higgins asked questions. To find the boy was the important thing. In spite of his years, Higgins moved with the agility of youth. Setting down his candle, he plucked his sou'wester and oilskins from a peg on the kitchen wall and put them on. Then he drew on his boots. Smith and Ramsay, Higgins said, referring to the chauffeur and the gardener, are at the stone cottage. I'll get them, and we'll scour the place. Cherry was all for going with him, but Tess's strong arms restrained her. Na, na, Miss Cherry, Tess said. You would only hamper the men. Higgins went out into the storm. Cherry and Tess watched him until the darkness swallowed up the glow of his flashlight as he ran toward the stone cottage. 
beyond the west gardens where Smith lived with Hugh Ramsay and his wife. "'Get off those wet clothes and take a hot bath,' Tess ordered Cherry then, "'before you catch your death.' The sturdy, motherly Scotswoman bundled her off upstairs. Cherry tiptoed to Sir Ian's door and peeked in. It was with profound relief that she saw that Sir Ian was asleep. There was a fire in the fireplace, and the room was snug and warm. That Sir Ian should have slept during all that time— and in the storm, with all its noise, struck Cherry as remarkable. She looked at her watch. It was twenty minutes past midnight. With all that had happened, it seemed years since she had gone up to the tower room. Actually, it was less than two hours ago. In her own room, Cherry took the leather pouch, with its pieces of silver and the page torn from the secret journal, from the pocket of her uniform, where it had remained safe throughout her frantic chase after Tammy. She put the pouch with its contents in the top drawer of her bureau, then she took a hot shower and changed into dry, clean clothes. Tess came up with a bowl of hot soup and crackers on a tray. "'Sit ye doon and drink this,' she ordered, placing the tray on a table and drawing a chair alongside. Cherry did as she was bid, grateful to Tess for her thoughtfulness." Tess selected a straight chair from which she could observe Cherry, and perched on it. At about Cherry's fourth spoonful of soup, Tess said abruptly, "'Now, Miss Cherry, you'll tell me how it happened that ye and Tammy Cameron were up in the tower this night.' Cherry swallowed the soup. Tess and Higgins had been in the Barclay family so long, she reflected, that they must know just about everything there was to know." So she told Tess the whole story of going up to look for old Sir Ian's secret journal, and of how Tammy had arrived with food for his grandfather, who had stowed away on the heron. Jock Cameron and his grandson Tammy will be found cold and dead on the Craigmoddy rocks, most likely. Tess wagged her head in the most doleful manner. Oh, don't say that, Tess, Cherry exclaimed, horrified at the very thought of such a tragedy. "'I wouldna say it if I didna think it,' Tess said with a sigh. "'And now that ye tell me Jock stowed away aboard the heron, "'it's unlikely that he will be heard of again. "'They've both been kidnapped and spirited away on the fishing boat, "'ne'er more to be seen.' "'On this illogical and dismal note, "'Tess gathered up the dishes and the tray, "'admonishing Cherry to try to get some rest. "'While ye can, for ye cannot tell what tomorrow will bring,' The cook took her departure. Cherry was so depressed over the imaginary fate of Tammy and his grandfather that she immediately burst into tears as soon as Tess left. Then she realized how silly it was. With Higgins, Smith, and Ramsay searching for Tammy, surely he would be found. Besides, old Jock and Tammy knew the island as well as they did the palm of their hands. As for being kidnapped— that was just Tess speaking out of her dour nature. It was ridiculous to believe that the heron's crew had made off with old Jock and little Tammy. So far as Cherry knew, the heron had not even come into port. But where had the fishing boat gone, with old Jock the stowaway and little Joe Tweed aboard after leaving St. John's? I do know one thing, though, she told herself, drying her eyes and blowing her nose vigorously. Old Sir Ian found native silver 
in that old mine. She felt she could no longer sit still and continue to puzzle over things. She would go up to the tower, on the chance that Tammy had gone back there, to old Sir Ian's journal, which she had left on the table. Taking her flashlight, she once more made her way up to the top of the tower. She lighted the candelabra on the table again and looked about. There was no one there, of course. The odor of melted wax and burned wicks hung heavy in the air from her previous visit. A picture of the little figure in his oilskins rose before her eyes, and she was filled with despair when she recalled how he had vanished into the stormy night. Going to a window, she looked out to see if she could catch a glimpse of the lights of the three men searching for Tammy on the cliffs. She could see nothing. It was dark, the sky still obscured by racing clouds. The wind wailed about the walls of the tower, though the storm seemed spent and the earlier uproar had subsided. She left the window, picked up the journal, and blowing out the candles made her way back downstairs. Upon looking into Sir Ian's room she found him asleep, appearing very comfortable and relaxed. I'm wide awake, Cherry thought, so I might as well sit in here as in my own room. She settled herself in the chair by the fire. She opened the journal where she had left off and began to read of the daily thoughts and happenings of a boy who lived in that same house so long ago. After a while the writing blurred on the page. Cherry closed her smarting eyes for a few minutes to rest them. Her head nodded several times, and she leaned it against the back of the chair. She fell sound asleep. End of chapter 12